This is an ABC podcast. Kia ora, Nissan Bolivinaka, and good morning. It's Eggy the Bowl here, your host for Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Today on the show, political drama playing out in Tonga. And of course, today marks a significant day in the history of Aotearoa. It is Waitangi Day. And sea sponges provide more accurate data on global warming. More on these stories shortly. Again, I'm Eggy the Bowl, and this is. Pacific Beat. We start in Tonga, where political drama has been playing out with King Tubal VI withdrawing his support of Prime Minister Siausi Sovaleni as the Defence Minister. According to a leaked letter from the country's Privy Council, King Tubal has also withdrawn his endorsement of Fekita Moeloa Utuikamanu as the Minister of Foreign Affairs and Tourism. So joining us now for the latest on this story is our ABC reporter in Tonga, Marion Kupu. With that, I say malo tamai pompongini. Thank you very much, Marion. Appreciate your time this morning. Look, before we get into the details, though, what's the actual atmosphere like in Nukwalofa following these uh, political developments? Aki, I can I can confidently say, and uh, on behalf of the Tongans here in Tonga, and also all around the world, there is a big question mark around their, our minds right now, as um, the leak letter from the privy uh, privy council that was uh, sent around yesterday from His Majesty to the acting Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister Asami Waipulu, in regards to the withdrawal of his consent and confidence in the portfolios in the government. Marion, usually that's like two separate portfolios. So can you just confirm? So he was the defence minister as well, of course, as the prime minister. Well, the Prime Minister holds a lot of portfolios. He's also the Minister of Education, uh, the Minister of um, uh, MADEC. He's he's still holding on to that, and the Minister of MPE. So those there are ministerial posts here in Tonga that's yet to be appointed to a minister, which he holds um, together as Prime Minister himself, together with the Minister of Defence. So there is a lot of portfolios that the PM is holding right now. Okay. Now, with the king having to withdraw his the royal appointment, can you maybe explain a little bit about that? What does that actually mean? I, I wouldn't put it as a royal appointment. I would I would safely say withdraw his confidence and consent. Um, mind you, Aggie, with the 2010 uh, transition of our governments to a more democratic government, the power invested with the, the the king himself to appoint prime ministers and ministers was given to the people. Hence, why the people chooses uh, the representative into the into the parliament, and then the parliament would choose the prime minister, and then the prime minister would choose his ministers into that government. Having said that, it is in the constitution after 2010 that the Cabinet ministers, the dismissal, reshuffling, and anything or even or in 
in anything to have to do with the ministerial portfolio. It depends on the prime minister's discretion. So that is that is what is hanging right now in the minds of our Tongan. Today will be a very interesting day in terms of what is the prime minister's next move. Um, is he going to respect and revoke his ministerial post uh, portfolio of the defense and also dismiss his minister? Or is he going to still maintain? Because either way, it is still by law and he's still protected by our constitution. Marion, I know he probably addressed yesterday uh, on a radio uh, piece, but has he has the Prime Minister himself come out publicly in response to the letter from the Privy Council? It wasn't normal for for the Prime Minister to be on the radio at around 10pm last night, Tongan time, but he addressed 20 topics or, or 20 agenda that the, His Majesty uh, was uh, always uh, putting forward during his opening speech at, a, at at the parliament. So those are the things that really concern and interest uh, His Majesty. And those 20 points was addressed and discussed and summarized, updated by the Prime Minister last night. These include health system, our education, our missions, overseas who are post overseas so the prime minister came it was almost in one hour program that he uh, detailed everything that was happening and what the government had been doing and what the government is doing and what the government is forecast to do so he did not deliberately answer straight to what the letter uh, what the what the Privy Council letter uh, was saying, he just basically came and uh, ran his program, just explaining what the government is doing in accordance to the interests of His Majesty. So today, publicly, we we will find out today uh, what the next move uh, our Prime Minister will do. Uh, yeah, and as we wait for the, his next move, I know some commentators have, commentators have said uh, it's a strong warning of the King's displeasure at both the Prime Minister and Foreign Minister. Thoughts on that? Um, yes, I think every government, um, there's always a strong warning. Um, you know, we had Achilles' uh, um, government, which was dissolved when Achilles' was Prime Minister. And uh, with the previous uh, government before Sovaleni, Pohiva uh, Duenito's government, his opening remarks, uh, speech or address at the opening parliament was a, a, a very, a wow, it was a very eye-opening and very different from any other parliament opening speeches made by the king. And now we have this letter to confirm his dissatisfaction towards the government. So he's basically putting everything on paper. Um, I don't know, and I'm very, very interested, and so does everyone else in Tonga, here in Tonga and also all over the world. They're all... uh, uh, just waiting to see what's the next move Marian, and how is that government going to play out. Absolutely. Marion, as you said, it's not normal for the Prime Minister to have to address uh, anyone or everyone uh, back there in the kingdom on the radio. Do you think because of the way that he operates that that may be somewhat why the King is 
not interested or has withdrawn his his uh, appointment from uh, the Prime Minister? Uh, Aggie, mind you, Aggie, this is a very, very, very sensitive topic to discuss because, you know, in our culture, when we're having to talk about our royal family, our king as a supreme power, and then we have to talk about the Prime Minister, the executive power, all of these things is very, very uh, sensitive. Um, I have reached out to our former Attorney General, who now is residing and working in New Zealand, just to clarify on our constitution. And I'm hoping he will clarify that. With between between the relationship between the, the His Majesty and the Prime Minister, today with the letter that we saw last uh, yesterday, just confirms that there are burning bridges somewhere, and we want to find out. How is the prime minister going to fix this? A way forward is he going to respect the um, and respond to his majesty's letter and concern or just use up his uh, legal right and continue on with his government? Also take note, Aggie, that this year is the last year before our new election, which is coming up next year. So there's only a few months before the complete term of the current prime minister and his government. And um, if we were to have a new government, let's just say, and, and that government is only going to be active for the next a few few months or, or so. So I don't know how this will play out, but he's, the, his majesty has made it clear in the letter that he's not satisfied with what the government is doing right now. Just quickly, uh, we have to wrap up, but Marion, I understand New Zealand's Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters will uh, undertake an official visit in Tonga today too. What's on his agenda? Well, basically, this visit was obviously planned and uh, scheduled for today. Um, Unfortunately, of the consequences that Tonga is uh, experiencing right now, especially when one of his visits would be a bilateral meeting with Tonga's acting prime minister, Honorable Sami Vaipulu, and also the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Honorable Fikita Moeloa Utoikamanu. that, and having said that, there's also a a visit to one of the central pharmacy warehouse for the Ministry of Health because these were funded by the New Zealand uh, government. Um, Aggie, um, even though all these issues are happening internal politics with our with our country, but the show must go on. Work has to be be done, and also there are ministers and VIP officials. Well, it looks like we've yeah, it looks like we've lost our uh, reporter there in Tonga, Marin Gupu. But I think we got the gist of our Atalano and our chat this morning. So that was Marin Gupu, ABC's reporter in Tonga. Hi, I'm Sayuli Salamasi Novanraiki, and I invite you to come with me to explore how our Pacific cultures have evolved with the changing times in a new show, Culture Compass. You'll meet people who are passionate about keeping traditions alive, passing them down to the next generation while adapting old ways to the present. Culture Compass, Tuesdays at 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. 
Welcome back to Pacific Beat. It's Aggie Dubol here, your host. Uh, for your show this morning, today is the National Day commemorating the first signing of Te Tiriti o Waitangi, or Treaty of Waitangi, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. This year's event has become contentious as the current coalition government have been accused of planning to roll back Māori reforms. But thousands of Māori and non-Māori have united in solidarity against the potential changes to the country's founding document. So joining us live from Waitangi, who has attended the dawn ceremony, is Pacific Media Network journalist Atutahi Pōtaka Jews. With that, I say kia ora e hoa. Welcome to the show. Are you there, Atutahi? (laughs) We have to cross the Tasman, of course, to catch up with you this morning, Atutahi. But thank you so much for joining our show. Firstly, uh, can you describe the mood or even the atmosphere right now? Well, right now it's a lot better than what it was yesterday uh, morning, I should say. Um, even this morning, there was a few grumbles when um, David Seymour stood to have his morning address in the dawn ceremony. Uh, but yesterday, I'm sure you've seen lots of New Zealand media coverage all over social media that David Seymour, Act Party's leader, was actually uh, sung down, if that makes sense. I don't want to say like shouted down because the Ngāpuhi style, which is the beautiful whenua that we're in in the far north of Aotearoa, their style of being um, of quietening you down is to sing you down. So it's a very, very humble way of being like told to to shush pretty much. But now that that's all over, the mood right now is a lot more excited. There's a lot more celebratory um, vibes happening. And the waka parade is, is happening down at the lower treaty grounds. And that's always a beautiful part of the yearly commemorations of Waitangi. Mm. Atitahi, you talked about, of course, uh, you know, uh, ACT Party leader there, David Seymour, being sung down. I even heard, though, that uh, Coalition Government New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters was uh, drowned out a bit by the chance of enoho or to sit down. I mean, he turned around and he accused the crowd of separatism and division. Was or is that really the case that happened yesterday? No, well... Yeah, I can't say yes or no to that. I think, you know, we've come to know know Winston Peters and how he reacts to uh, confrontational, uh, well, confrontational, um, you know, uh, crowds. Um, And there was a big crowd yesterday who at first was willing to hear what he had to say, but as soon as he started attacking the crowd, telling them that they needed to get education, telling them, most of these protesters, or I don't want to call them protesters, but most of these toy tutti tiriti activationists um, were were probably younger than forty years old, and so he was, you know, saying that they were too young and don't understand, and telling them to get education, which is obviously going to rile up a um, and a reaction out of them. Uh, and it's not common practice among Māori to tell your kaumātua to sit down, to end noho. Um, but the mamai that a lot of the, the hurt that a lot of our generation of Māori are feeling today is that they're being betrayed, that they feel that they're seeing their kaumātua who once was on this side of the marae, who was once a part of the protest for the language, for te ao Māori, for the land. And now that they're seeing him sit with colonialism sit with the with the house of power um they feel betrayed and so when they hear him start attacking them that way 
that's why they felt every right to defend their mana and tell him to sit down. Now, I know uh, in opposition, we think of the likes of Te Pāti Māori who have said there's just been a lack of consultation from this current New Zealand uh, coalition government, especially on this redefining of the principles of Te Tiriti o Waitangi. Where you would have heard uh, Prime Minister Christopher Luxon, people have said that was a bit of a less than inspirational speech. Was that the actual response or what the crowd got? Yeah, um, the crowd was initially told by the Kaumatua to um, allow the Prime Minister to speak uh, after chanting in noho to Winston Peters and singing down uh, David Seymour. So the Kaumatua from the Pai, from the Hokainga, said to the crowd, be respectful and sit in silence to allow um, our Prime Minister to speak so we can hear what he has to say. And once he was finished with his speech, I'll be honest, the crowd was not reactive at all. And it's actually quite reminiscent of his speech from last year's Waitangi Day. Um, he sort of, for lack of better words, mansplained Te Tiriti o Waitangi to Te Ao Māori, uh, which is not something that the crowd was looking for. Te Ao Māori was looking for him to respond to um, a lot of the accusations being thrown across the Marae being thrown across that discussion, uh, Paul Hedi, yesterday. Um, a prominent lawyer from a prominent Māori lawyer, Annette Sykes, stood and, and called them out and she said, I want to, before you leave, Christopher Luxon, Prime Minister, I want uh, a settlement agreement for uh, Ngāpuhi, which is, again, the Northland up here and the Crown, who have been in uh, in cohorts or uh, in discussions with Parliament for many years now about settling Waitangi agreements. Um, and that wasn't even addressed um, and the protesters that came up and asking them to honour the treaty and to explain why the tre- redefining the treaty uh, referendum uh, bill that the ACT Party has proposed, why that wasn't actually discussed with any iwi first, why none of the iwi who uh, descend from the dangatira that signed the treaty, the Tiriti or Waitangi, uh, were not discussed first, so there were a lot of questions and none of them were addressed. And that's only now just made Tao Māori think, okay, what are we going to do now? What's our next steps now? And it's also made Māori turn towards our Pacific people and figure out a way to have that partnership stronger and come together to help push this kaupapa for not only Tao Māori, but also for um, many people who call Aotearoa home. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with Pacific Media Network journalist Atutahi Pōtaka Jews, who's live in Waitangi on what is one of Aotearoa New Zealand's most significant days in history. Uh, Atutahi, we talk about uh, messages and the messages that were spoken on that day. What is something that actually stood out from any of the speakers uh, this morning? Um, well, this morning's conversation, uh, this morning's kaupapa, Right Honourable Chris, uh, Christopher Luxon, leader of the opposition Labour Party, um, he spoke about honouring uh, Rangi, Whenua and Aotearoa um, and he gave a beautiful proverb into our Māori which translates loosely to him saying that he acknowledges the sky, the ground and all of Aotearoa and all who live within it, which is quite beautiful, something that you would expect to hear from the Prime Minister of this country. Um, and so this morning there was just, uh, there was a lot of convers- a lot of talks about um, recognition of of this day, but we're now in 2024, 
We don't need to recognize it anymore. It's been recognized since 1840. What we need now is actual action and actual promises to be met. Um, what Te Ao Māori now want is to see the uh, principles of Te Tiriti be actioned by the treaty partner, or the Crown representatives. And that is not happening at the moment. Te Ao Māori do feel that their, that their treaty partner is not upholding their end of the deal. Um, a lot of the conversations that were happening yesterday were between Te Ao Māori were messages of unity and togetherness. And the former Minister of Pacific Peoples, Alpito William Seo, he stood and spoke on the pie and he spoke Samoa on the pie. And to hear a Pacific language in a space like this at a, at a um, prominent Māori event just again strengthens that message of unity that um, Tangata Moana and Tangata Whenua are hopefully on this journey together. Yeah, we got to speak to, uh, you know, Tongan community leader yesterday, Pakilao Manasilua, who I know was on the grounds there alongside you. And I have to ask this, Atutahi, as a journalist of Māori Pacific Heritage, what does today mean for you? Uh, today means to me, it means, um, I guess I touched on it a little bit before, of, of no longer just wanting it to be recognised as a national day, but actually understanding that the words written in the treaty are, you know, words from Queen Victoria herself, which talks about extending kindness and how we've taken the interpretation to our Māori, since we are mana whenua of this land, um, is that she's asking us to be kind to the lawless Pākehā. And these are words, again, from those times that were arriving in Aotearoa, who were running amok, pretty much, and she wanted peace, love and kindness to be extended to her British sub subjects. And that's what happened. Te Ao Māori opened up their doors, opened up the whenua, and since then we've seen so many Māori iwi, so many Māori hapu, so many Māori fall uh, to the idea of colonialism. And what I what this day means to me as Māori and Pacific before journalists is that there the Pacific is what connects all of us. And so an issue that is Māori-based isn't just Māori-based. It is all Pacific-based because we all feel the mamai of uh, colonialism, of uh, colonization. And it's it's only a better and a stronger um, discussion to be had when we are all on the same side together as Indigenous peoples. So today means... Today means strength and partnerships. Today means mana motuhake, self-determination. And today means, um, you know, being unapologetically your Indigenous self. Beautiful. Atutahi, we thank you so much for your time this morning. I know it is uh, a day of celebration today, so we're going to let you go back and celebrate there uh, on Waitangi. But thank you again, Ngā Mihi, for your time this morning. No worries. That, of course, is PMN News Journalist Atitahi Pōtakaju speaking to us live from Waitangi in Aotearoa, New Zealand.
That's right. Just like that, we head around the region to see what is the latest uh, with our news wrap brought to us by producer Carl Evans. With that, good morning, sir. How are you doing? I'm well, Aggie. How about yourself? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing good, thank you. Uh, let's head straight into it because New Zealand uh, has called for the immediate release of, oh, we haven't done this story in a while, release of Kiwi pilot Philip Mertens. What's the latest there? Yeah, you're right. It has been a while since, since we've heard from him. So it's been almost a year since Philip Mertens was taken hostage by rebels uh, in Indonesia's Papua region. In fact, it's going to be a year to the day tomorrow, I believe. And that was after an armed faction of the West Papua National Liberation Army kidnapped him um, after his after he landed his plane. Now, they threatened to shoot him uh, if talks about Papuan independence were denied. And one year on, he remains in captivity. And New Zealand's Foreign Affairs Minister, Winston Peters, has strongly urged those holding him to release him saying his detention uh, at this point serves the interest of no one. Uh, interestingly, it actually follows similar calls from uh, the West Papua National Liberation Army spokesperson, uh, Sebi Sanborn. Uh, he said no country in history has gained independence by taking a hostage, um, but it looks like the rebel group so far is yet to heed that advice. Well, as you said, obviously, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister uh, Winston Peters has said to release him, but has New Zealand actually made any other efforts to release him? Well, according to uh, Mr. Peters, they have. Uh, he said a, a range of government agencies were working with Indonesian counterparts. Um, the Indonesian government has also prioritised negotiations with with uh, religious and community leaders to to free the pilot, um, noting the dangers of, of conducting a military operation uh, in that rugged highland area. But um, but yeah, like you said, it, it certainly has been a while since there's been um, any updates. So oh, yeah, so yeah, I, I mean, I guess uh, hopefully this can restart. Pro, uh, pro- the process in some absolutely, way. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, well, we head to a US official who is urging Papua New Guinean to, uh, sorry, Papua New Guinea to reject the Chinese security deal. Gosh, what's happening here? That's right. So a senior US State Department official has urged PNG to turn down China's offer, saying that any security guarantee with Beijing uh, comes with consequences and costs. So, yeah, certainly didn't mince his words there. Uh, that's according to a quote from uh, United States Deputy Secretary of State uh, Richard Verma, who spoke to the Sydney Morning Herald uh, while he was in Australia on Monday. And uh, it comes after uh, foreign aff- uh, PNG Foreign Affairs Minister Justin Ch- uh, Kachenko announced that uh, PNG was in early talks with China uh, on that potential security pact. It's understood China has offered to assist uh, PNG's police force with, uh, with training, equipment and surveillance technology. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that, particularly given that uh, James Marape is in Australia this week. I'd imagine those talks will come up somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, staying with PNG, uh, the US's new ambassador to PNG has arrived in Port Moresby. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, PNG's new US envoy Anne Marie uh, Anne Marie Tadashok has arrived uh, in the capital. Uh, that's where she'll be based. Uh, but she'll also have diplomatic administration of the Solomon Islands in Vanuatu uh, when those two embassies are, are complete. They're, they're being worked on at the moment. Um, she was nominated personally by Joe Biden uh, and has worked in various senior roles uh, for the US Agency for International uh, Development. So comes mm. uh, comes pretty highly qualified, I imagine. Uh, yeah. Uh, has she said what her goals uh, as an ambassador would be? Well, this is a quote, um, but according to that quote, 
uh, she says the first first steps will be to listen and learn about uh, the people's hopes and dreams. It very sounds very presidential, doesn't it? Uh, and work to deliver promises of mutual prosperity uh, and to deepen the engagement between the uh, US and Pacific. So obviously lots of shared history between uh, the US and the Pacific dating mainly back to the Second World War and she believes there's still uh, lots that uh, that everybody can learn off each other. Here we go. Of course, it sounds very American, doesn't it? <laughs> appreciate you bringing our news rep this morning, Carl. Thank you, Aggie. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Dubon, for your Tuesday. While we head to the Cook Islands, where a tropical cyclone warning has been issued, with gale force winds expected to arrive in the next day. But the weather pattern may also bring sorely needed rain to the country's drought-stricken southern islands. For more on this, I'm joined now by Neville Cooper, meteorologist and managing director at Nandraki Weather in Fiji. With that, I say good morning, sir. Good morning, Aggie. Yeah, thank you for joining us this morning. Gosh, how was the storm looking today for the Cook Islands? Well, it's uh, certainly got its act together over the last 24 hours. Um, this system has been um, uh, wandering around the, the Pacific east of the Dateline now for quite a few days. In fact, it popped popped across Fiji, um, brought us a bit of rain late last week and then sort of wandered off towards Tongatapu and then towards Niue and then it sort of shot north and uh about 24 hours ago, it was very close to Tutuila on the eastern end of the Samoa's uh, archipelago. But uh, as I said, in the last 24 hours, it's really got itself organised and it's a very significant system now. An unusual uh, east of the Dateline cyclone, but uh, El, uh, El Nino years are where we do see the most activity east of the Dateline, so perhaps not so much of a surprise at all. Mm. But can we expect much change then over the next 24 hours? <clears throat> Yes, it's um, it's strengthening, um, and we already have uh, uh, gale warnings current for much of the southern Cooks. Um, there is a big high to the south, um, sitting over the Kermadex, um, south of Tonga, and that high extends a ridge up uh, into the tropics. And so where this uh, system is developing, there's quite a strong pressure gradient on the southern side of the, this particular system. So it's quite windy, and it's going to stay windy. Um, and I guess what everybody in Rarotonga uh, and, and other islands of the Southern Cooks will be hoping is that that wind translates into some sort of rain and gives them some relief from the, the ongoing drought conditions they've experienced so far this, uh, this summer. Yeah, uh, Neville, how bad have these drought conditions been, though? Mm. Um, look, uh, it, for, for small islands um, and, and atolls, uh, it doesn't take long before your... Um, your consumable water literally dries up. Um, they uh, they don't they rely a lot on rainwater. So uh, and aquifers, uh, freshwater lenses below the islands are relatively small because the islands are relatively small. So um, if you're pumping water out of the ground, um, then they can they can dry up within a month, two months, three months, depending on how big your island is. So um, from from an agricultural point of view, uh, it has been quite bad because there's been little, if any, rain. 
but even even beyond that, uh, access to water through the um, through the wells and and uh, uh, atoll lenses, freshwater lenses below the islands, um, they they would imagine I would imagine would be starting to get pretty uh, a pretty uh, too much drained out. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, I'm not a, a hydraulics expert and <laughs> and how how the waters work in in uh, these places, but I do know from past experience that. Um, by about now, they'll be feeling the pinch, uh, definitely, and relying a lot on, on imported water. Absolutely. Uh, and, of course, this usually is the peak of the cyclone season for the Pacific. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. February uh, and March uh, is the, the uh, statistically the busiest time of the year. February has the most cyclones uh, – sorry, March actually has the most cyclones um, – for uh, for any month in the summer, but that's uh, perhaps offset a little bit by the fact that March is 31 days long and February is usually 28, but we'll have 29 this year, of course. It's a leap year. Yes. So, um, but each month, both months, February March is is when we have our busiest time. So we're all we're all watching closely to see what happens. Yeah, how is the rest of the region looking? Well, the, uh, the this particular system has developed out of what has been quite an active um, South Pacific convergence zone, which is sitting to the north along about uh, 10 degrees south latitude. If you can imagine a line from about uh, Honiara uh, across uh, through southern Tuvalu to uh, Tokelau and then out into the northern Cook Islands, that's pretty much where the, the convergence zone currently sits. And so Around that sort of strip, uh, say between the equator and about uh, 12 uh, south latitude, it's been quite wet. Uh, they haven't had a lot of rain. Um, but everywhere south of that, it's been pretty dry. Southern Vanuatu, Fiji, Tonga, <clears throat> and of course the Cooks. And so um, we're waiting to see uh, uh, how that, that active conversion zone uh, pans out. There is another tropical de- Depression, Tropical Depression 07, which is right on uh, the 160-degree east longitude line, basically due south of Honiara, um, just to the northwest of New Caledonia. That will probably become a cyclone, I would think, by Friday. Um, and uh, But it will wander around the southeast corner of the Coral Sea and perhaps impact southern Vanuatu and New Caledonia. Um, but then beyond that, we do have another... Uh, system showing up now in the longer range forecasts uh, near Samoa, and that that may actually be a second system uh, east of the Dateline, which may also follow uh, the, a very similar course to the one we're watching right now. Mm. Hey, look, Neville, thank you very much for just giving us an insight into it and giving us an update. We definitely will keep our eyes and ears uh, peeled for the latest. Uh, but again, thank you for your time this morning. Yep, you're welcome. And uh, just a quick heads up, I did see just a moment ago that um, they do expect uh, this system to be named about uh, noon uh, UTC, so that would be around about uh, 2 p.m. Uh, local time in the Cook Islands. They're a day behind us, of course, so um, it mm. should it should be upgraded to a cyclone. I would say within the next uh, four to six hours. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that, Neville. Appreciate your time this morning. You're welcome. That is Neville Coop, meteorologist and managing director in Nadraki Weather in Fiji. Pacific Beat. 
Well, it's been 30 years since the New Zealand film Once Were Warriors highlighted the devastating impact of family violence on the big screen. Now a new feature film set in rural Papua New Guinea is hoping to do the same. It's called Wounded Warriors, and it tells the story of a young father determined to break free from the cycle of violence that's plagued his family. Let's take a listen. Women shouldn't be acting with men. All we're going to do is feed people. How do you think the solution is going to work? Blanca, you must protect and love your wife and son at all costs. To find out more, we are joined by the director, PNG filmmaker Richard Sargent, who has just wrapped up shooting of the film. With that, I say welcome to the program, Richard. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, good good morning. Uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely, Richard. Appreciate your time this morning. Firstly, look, congratulations on completing this film. Now, I know your film is inspired by the alarming rates uh, of domestic violence and intergenerational yeah. trauma within PNG. Richard, why did you want to tell this story? Um, well, look, you know, PNG is... Uh I'm in a country where it's known for a lot of uh, violence in the family and just, you know, violence in general. Um, you know, when, you know, like a, like a normal PNG person, it's, it's action first before speaking. <laughs> um, so um, we, I decided to write a script along the lines of intergenerational trauma where violence uh, is passed on by generation to generation. And I, I, you know, sort of think it's a message that uh, PNG and especially the world needs right now. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of factors around why there is uh, family violence, but this uh, film touches on intergenerational uh, trauma. So, yeah. Yeah. And of course, look, domestic violence and intergenerational trauma isn't just uh, in PNG. I know it's across the Pacific, across the world. And you yeah. have specifically, uh, Richard, centered the film around a man uh, named Laka and his journey of healing and redemption, uh, which is interesting, though, because, however, he's quite prone to violent tendencies himself, right? Why, why did you want to tell the story from his perspective? Because often it's from the victim, um, right? Yes, 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 exactly. Um, so, um, you know, violence or family violence is a very like sensitive topic. And um, when I wrote the script, I didn't, I didn't want to, um, you know, portray the film in a way that we are blaming uh, like a particular gender or we're like blaming men. But you know, coming from a spe- uh, perspective from Laka, uh, Laka is a young young father. Um, um, he loves his family, of course, but um, he's he was brought up in in a violent home as well, and by experiencing that, those um, you know tendencies or that those that that violent uh, past begins to haunt him, and then he realizes that he's doing the same thing like what his father did 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 to him, and then later on during the film he realizes that it has been passed on from generation from his grandfather to his um, uh, father and then to him. So, uh, yeah, so the the film is from his perspective where he has to make decisions um, either to change or lose his family. Wow. And, yeah. I, and, and I believe also the film itself is set in central province of PNG. Can you tell us a little bit more about where it's shot and, and why you selected that location? Yes. Uh, so 
central provinces where I come from, uh, in a particular village called uh, Makirupu, that's that is that is where I um, I mean that's that's where I come from. So why I chose that um, place is 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 because um, I would relate more to the people um, in terms of communication and because we had a short time to produce this film. Um, so you know back I mean people back in the village would know me and I would know them and when I when I when I brought up the idea to them it it was sort of like people were um, really eager to help uh, within the short. Uh, time frame that we we have so um you know i mean knowing the language um communication was very easy for me um and they sort of caught my vision and everything went smoothly so i think that's why i um chose to go back to my village and get my people to help me yeah and to involve your community like that, I, I have to ask a very personal question uh, based on, on this film and domestic violence. Was some of these themes or things something that you possibly had faced growing up? Um, growing up, um, I, I sort of grew up in a, in a, in a religious family, like a, a Christian family. So I personally didn't go through any of that, but I've seen... And I, and you know, growing up in the community, I've um, seen a lot of uh, violence happening. Um, not just, not just against women, but against you know children as well. And um, you know, that is, I I know that there is, um, there is light at the end of the tunnel where, you know, families don't have to live in violence. Um, there is always, you know, like the film itself um, speaks about love. And communication, and there is always a way to address things. And uh, yeah, you're you're listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Maggie Dubois, and I'm chatting with PNG filmmaker Richard Sargent about his new film, Wounded Warriors. Uh, I understand, Richard, you interviewed uh, domestic violence survivors and community leaders while researching this film. I mean, gosh, what was that process like? Yeah, the last uh, I think two two years I've um, created short films and uh, short documentaries for different uh, organizations, both here in Australia, back in PNG. So um, those you know short uh, films, and along with some some research from some uh, university students from here in Australia, um, you know, brought out those factors that um, uh, that that, you know, cause family violence. Um, so we did in- interview some victims uh, back in PNG and here as well. Some of the stories were really, uh, you know, really sad. Some, you know, stories were brutal. But, um, yeah, that's that's um, what prompt, um, prompted me to come up with this story. And I think film filmmaking's a very powerful tool to bring a message out, mm, especially in PNG. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially for the actors, I must say, after having to either interview them and, and do a little bit of research, what was it like for them to have to portray these kinds of themes on screen? I mean, was it quite emotional? Yeah, that's that's a very good um, question uh, because you know my 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 people back in my village, this has never happened to them. Like they've um, never seen. I mean, when it comes to film uh, making. 
I'm like they only watch, you know, like dramas on TV, Filipino dramas, um, and and all that. So when I brought the idea up there, um, the interest was, uh, you know, like the I mean, people back home they were sort of hesitant. They were like, you know, what are we gonna do? Um, at at first, I posted a uh, casting call um, on the on this village uh, group on Facebook. And because not 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 many local people are on Facebook, so there was, I would say there was not really a good response to what I was, you know, trying to trying to do. Uh, but our, one of our main characters, uh, uh, Sarah, who is played by Grace Vanua, um, she applied, and uh, we really liked her, her audition because she um, she acted in a few short PNG films in the past. Um, so it was it was really good to work with her, but to work with um, when I went back up to the village, it came to a point where I just had to hand handpick um, you know people to act the roles, and um, like because I said before, the understanding of you know speaking the same language, um, you know we we I sort of got got them to you know read read the script and and some of them actually have gone through family violence um and you know to play those roles some some of the roles were really um in, uh, inspiring to them and um the support they showed as the days of shooting went by was really overwhelming because um you know once they got to know the whole story they showed the full support and there were a few like you know challenges of acting like you know doing a few more takes than normal but uh, but but it it was good. Uh, we 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 did two weeks of uh, shoot. We had a schedule, and maybe one of the days it was it was pouring rain, and we had to cancel the the shoot. But everyone did well, and it actually turned out better than I I I um thought at first. So. That's yeah, awesome. it was uh, really, really good. Yeah, and and even despite I, I would say that maybe the dark nature of the film, without giving too much away, what what would you like the audiences to leave? Are you wanting them to hopefully feel optimistic that the the cycle of domestic violence can be broken? Yes, I do. Um, like like I said before, it is a very sensitive topic. So, like when I wrote the film. I didn't want to in any way blame any any certain gender or I mean you know blame blame men for all the violence and everything but um the the message in the film is uh, um about the power of love communication and um yes the you know laka has to make a decision to end the cycle of uh you know intergenerational trauma so I think the films very powerful and i'm and i'm sure people are gonna you know take it with uh good heart and 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 you know people will learn uh from it yeah yeah and i do want to say you're you're now the director of zolard media correct me if i got that uh, yeah. um, pronunciation yes, yes. Uh, you know which is <laughs> yeah. a, a passionate team of filmmakers can you maybe just tell a bit about who you guys are and what you actually do um, so Zolad Media, I started this uh, little video company back in 2018, and um, we do um, you know films for companies and all that. And then just recently, we branched out to making like films, uh, short films. Um, so and then this one's going to be our our longest film so far. 
Um, we have a small team of uh, what five or six of us here. Yeah, just um, I, um, some of them are my like family. Um, so we we just go out and uh, we we shoot little stories. Um, some of them based around family violence or uh, yeah, just like you know messages to bring um, hope hope to the people. Mm-hmm. So the um, company is based here in Melbourne, uh, but we do work in other parts of Australia and PNG as well. Nice, I love so, that. Yeah. And and uh, with Wounded Warriors, uh, the movie is expected to come out on International Women's Day, uh, which I believe. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. March the eighth. Yes. Okay. Yes, where where will it where um, will it be screened? Where can people go and see it? Um, so if so, we are in the post production phase now. So if everything goes well, it will be shown on or around the eighth of March. Firstly, here in Melbourne, and then maybe about two weeks after, it's going to be shown up in uh, PNG. Uh, and then after that, um, you know, we may we may um, show it in other other parts of Australia or in the Pacific. Um, so yeah, we we are in the process of uh, post production now. So once everything is done, then uh, hopefully we will show it on International Women's Day on the eighth of March. Yeah. Well, that is exciting stuff, uh, Richard. We are so uh, proud of the work that you're doing, and we appreciate your time this morning. And we look forward to seeing that piece too. Thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, if 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 um if you want to know more about Wounded Warriors, we do have a a Facebook page. Yes. Uh, so um, yeah. No, well, we can put that together with this piece. But thank you very much for your time yeah. this morning, Richard. Thank you so much. Thanks no, for having me. No worries. PNG filmmaker Richard Sargent, director of upcoming film Wounded Warriors, which is set for release on March the eighth. Tune in to SBS Samoa News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoa News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan-speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoa News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in the Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Remember, if you need to find our stories, head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. We'll be back again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time, but I'll be back 6am PNG time tomorrow. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next. And after that, it's Nisha Daily. Until then, I'm Aggie Dubol, and you've been tuning into Pacific Beat.